Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network for Russia and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and today we're making something of a departure from our normal format, as I'm here with Clem Cecil, who is the director of Pushkin House in London, the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural center. I've asked Clem to come on the podcast because I will be interviewing some of the authors who are shortlisted for this year's prestigious Pushkin House Russian Book Prize. This is awarded annually for the best nonfiction work about Russia, and Clem has very kindly agreed to speak with us about Pushkin House and the Book Prize and this year's finalists. Clem, thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's begin with Pushkin House itself, because I think not all of our readers may be familiar with the work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So, um, as you say, Pushkin House is the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. Um, it's a bit misleading in a way to call it a Russian cultural centre because it's a centre for Russian culture. But we're kind of an anomaly because we're an oasis of Russia within London. And we were set up by Russian emigres in 1954. And they were first and second generation emigres. And they wanted a place where they could gather themselves and kind of touch their culture, kind of come back in touch with their culture that they'd left behind. But also, equally importantly, they wanted to share it with their new British friends. So it was a place where outstanding Russian scholars, artists, cultural figures spoke, presented, had exhibitions. But it's also where British scholars presented new research. Um, So it was this kind of melting pot of of the the most interesting aspects of Russian studies, really, mostly cultural, um, in this house in Labrick Grove. And it was always very informal. It was just a a sitting room where you could fit like 30, 40 people max. And we've got these wonderful old pictures from the first Pushkin House meetings, where they were called Pushkin Club meetings, with um, women wearing hats and men wearing suits and everyone smoking a lot. (laughs) and but actually even though people don't wear hats anymore and people don't smoke inside we still have that same informal atmosphere and we moved we moved premises in 2005 from Notting Hill which is a kind of residential part of London to a much busier part of London we're now in Bloomsbury just around the corner from the British Museum so we're kind of on the beaten track now and that was the idea of the move was to put Pushkin House on the cultural map of London but we still have an informal atmosphere we still have a fairly small salon where you can fit maximum 65 people but we continue in the same spirit with freedom of speech as a core principle and this sort of informal atmosphere uh, encouraging people to come and share their research. In the old days when it was set up they would have occasionally Soviet um, scholars, writers, artists and so on uh, but it wasn't because they were a Soviet institution, but they were interested in kind of keeping the link alive with, with Russia, Soviet Union. Um, so they would grab whoever was coming through London, which was quite a rare thing then. Um, now, after the fall of the Soviet Union and free travel and so on, 
it's not so much emigres who come to us because you don't have emigres anymore in the traditional sense of the word. People come and go from Russia. But we still grab people, grab Russians as they come through London. And we also, and they own it, and ask them to come and speak, scholars, artists, and and so on. And also we invite Russians living abroad. So we just had an, art, an artist called Yevgeny Fix who lives in New York. He did a wonderful exhibition called Mother Tongue about LGBT issues. So um, that's, that. I mean, I could talk a lot longer, but that, that gives some flavour of our origins and how we're still in touch with them today. I see. And I can testify, I've been to several events at Pushkin House and it's a wonderfully warm and welcoming atmosphere. And I've actually spoken there on, on um, mayonnaise, of all things, about mm. Russian food. And it was a oh, really marvellous, mar- I think it's before you took over as director. Um, it was a marvellously fun evening. Um, so I do encourage yeah. listeners to um, learn more about Pushkin House and if you're passing through London to find out what's going on there because there really is always something going on isn't there yeah oh that's so great that you spoke there and I'm really glad it was a positive experience it was fantastic yeah we do um, our food related events are, are really popular there's such curiosity about food culture in Russia um, and it's such a rich line of research so that's fantastic yeah no definitely listeners outside of the UK and we have podcasts we have a blog you know we've got quite a lot of material on the website that people can access even if they're not actually in London Mm -hmm. and we'll put all that information um, in the show notes for people to easily access but let's get back to the prize um, because that's those are the interviews that we'll be um, we'll be doing over the next few weeks what is the origin of the prize it hasn't been going for very long but it's already gained quite a lot of notoriety hasn't it Yeah, that's right. This is just the seventh year of the prize, in fact. And the idea behind the prize, uh, which is awarded to the best book in English, non-fiction about Russia, published in the preceding year, the idea really was that we present so many books at Pushkin House about Russia that it was felt that a prize was needed, some kind of discussion was needed, general discussion around the books, uh, to try and kind of give the public an idea of the vast variety of books that are published every year about Russia, we felt it would be a really good tool to um, to have a positive discussion about Russia um, every year and also a great tool for spreading the word about Pushkin House and our work within Russia and well, all over the world because our judges come from all over the world. And so it's a kind of promotional thing for Pushkin House, but that's very much to do with our mission and um so, and our mission is to bring the best of, of Russian culture, to keep the conversation going about it outside of Russia. And can you speak a little bit um, about how you choose the books or how do the authors get nominated for the prize? Yeah, so um, for, for, firstly, we choose the jury. So that's a real challenge every year to find five people who would be suitable and create a kind of varied jury. Journalists, people from think tanks, writers, um, academics, um, curators, experts in their field, all sorts of things. And we like to try and combine Russian and and and, and non-Russian. And that, so the Russians have to be able to read in English because the list is enormous. Um, I mean, if you were to stab a guest, um, Jennifer, how many books would you think that they had to look at to get before they get down to the shortlist? Well, the shortlist is six. So I, I'm imagining something like 20. No, they have to look at about 90 books. Oh, my Lord. And through yeah. what what period of time? Because that's, that's a challenge. Wow. Even for those of us who love books. It is a really big challenge. I mean, it's a pretty intense experience being a judge on the prize because they only have about two, 
they only have about three months because they usually come to the shortlist by the end of March. But then there is room for discussion. There's till mid June to to fine tune to fine tune that. But because we announce, wait, we announce at the end of April normally. So we like them to read the books by the end of March. Then there's a month to to pick up on books that the other members of the jury might have read that you might not have seen. And then, so so really, it's four months. It's four months to look at ninety books. Look at is a very gentle word of saying read. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed um, that you many of your judges are past winners of the prize. Is that correct? I noticed Douglas Smith is is a judge. Yeah. No. Um. Andrew Jack. Andrew set Jack. up the prize. Um. No. No. Sorry. You're right, Douglas Smith. You're absolutely right because it was the idea of Andrew Jack, who's the chairman of this prize. And he set it up seven years ago, and he's former chairman of Pushkin House. He, it was his idea to invite the winner to be in the jury the following year. Mm-hmm. So as you say, Douglas Smith, he won, um, I think it was the first prize. And he then also went on to become the main sponsor of the prize, which for which we are massively grateful to him and his partner, Stephanie. And I think listeners will, will know his book, Former People, about the nobility. Um, and that's the... That's the book he won the prize for, but he's also known for his book about Rasputin. Isn't that right? Yeah, exactly. Precisely okay. that. Yeah, yeah. And last year you had a very interesting winner, um, Alexandra. I'm I'm not sure I can say her name right, correctly. Is it Petri? Uh, Perry. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah she. Yeah. Yeah. Alexis Perry is outstanding. She is um, the book. Um, the war within is about the blockade of Leningrad and it was it was a really I was a really uh, quite stunned at the the choice because it was um a very intense no actually Jennifer I'd like to say that again if you don't mind I sure was, go ahead yeah. um I'm just making a note of the time it's nine twenty six, and do you want me to ask the question again yeah if you don't mind okay um okay we'll start again it's Last year's uh, winner was Alexis Perry's book about the siege of Leningrad. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it was an unusual choice. Yeah, it's an extraordinary book, The War Within. Um, Alexis Perry drew on um, over 100, I think it was 126, previously unused diaries, so unused in research, unpublished diaries. Um, And... To, to to have a fresh look at the blockade and to really look at what people went through. And she discovered that people in their diaries were going through these existential processes, very personal, um, which were, they kind of belied, or they'd certainly added to people's understanding of the blockade, which which generally we all sort of understand from a kind of big history, kind of meta-history point of view. And she was really looking as the title implies, at, at the internal struggles that people were going through. Um, and so it was incredibly moving and very enriching in terms of looking at the blockade. Um, and it's a really interesting work because it combines history and sort of psychoanalysis, actually, to give this very insightful and yeah kind of inward looking kind of interpretation and analysis very personal of the war so it wasn't just generals and editors kind of thing it was like the common man on the street um and just following their 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 very grueling experience I mean incredibly grueling and how impacted on their relationship with themselves their relationship with God their relationship with their family 
it, it was and what what starvation and being cut off does to a person. And the the finalists this year have also produced a range of fascinating and very moving books in some cases. They cover an extraordinarily broad range of topics from the history of organized crime to an interpretation of Western culture during the thaw, during the 50s and 60s. Can you take us through the six finalists and their books? Yeah, no, very yeah. briefly. <laughs> yeah, very briefly. No, we've got a great selection this year. The first thing that, that is notable about it is that they're all kind of 20th century books. They're all about Russia, stroke the Soviet Union in the 20th century. So, um, as you say, the one about organised crime, uh, The Vori by Mark Galliotti, is all about um, the, the kind of, is all about the sort of um, organised crime network in Russia, looking at things like the prison network, the language, the jargon, how um, the prison network and traditions then kind of translated themselves into everyday life when these people were released, how big crime infiltrated right up to the top of the state, how it's kind of infected every aspect of Russian life in a way. Um, And it's a chilling, fascinating read and analysis. Then you've got Ben McIntyre, the the spy and the traitor. And Ben McIntyre, who's a journalist for The Times, um, he's kind of made his name by writing about spies. And this is about Alia Gordievsky. And it's absolutely incredible story. It's a thriller. You, You can't put it down once you start reading it. You've got Maybe Esther by Katya Petrovska, which I, I understand, Jennifer, that you're reviewing, which is a fascinating book. Um, it's, a, it's a study of her. She tracks her, her fragmented family tree and discovers extraordinary things about her family. All, and it kind of covers the whole 20th century history of the Soviet Union uh, from a very personal point of view. Then you've got Chernobyl by Sergei Proky, which is a, a, a mega kind of history of Chernobyl, which is kind of probably... Uh, well it's got the most distance of any book to date on the disaster so it's got this massive sweep in it which so it gives the disaster an incredible context um, and again it's a it's an amazing bit of writing um, we've got 1983 the world's at the brink which is about the nuclear kind of uh, standoff this is very very kind of peak cold war reading by taylor downing and then um, to see paris and die that you mentioned um the Soviet Lives of Western Culture. This is a really moving book for Pushkin House because it's all about the emigre experience. It's about what Soviets thought emigration was going to be like. It's what they thought the West was like. And 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 it's also about the reality of that experience. It's kind of heartbreaking, but it's also a, a, a kind of... It also really shows just how creative the Soviets were in their relationship to the West. They, I mean, the, about the translations, for example, of Catcher in the Rye, how, how they kind of made aspects of Western culture their own and thus made them into new works in some ways. And the generosity with which they looked at the West, um, I find that I find that a very, very important book for me as someone who's been looking at Russia for a long time because it really helps understand the internal process. Yes, and I think it says a lot about our ongoing I don't want to say love-hate relationship between the West and Russia, but that the sort of the tension of that mm. of that relationship that has so much enthusiasm and misunderstanding on both sides. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I think that's right. The ambiguities and, yeah, the huge differences in culture. Um, yeah. Okay, well, um, having read all six of the books, I have to say I, the judges have their work 
cut out for them. And um, this may well be a photo finish. Um, and the prize is awarded on the 12th of June. Is that correct? That's right. We have this really exciting dinner when all the, all the authors and all the judges gather and it's announced at the dinner. Exciting times. Well, Clem, thanks so much for taking time out of your very busy week um, to speak with us today about Pushkin House and this year's Pushkin House shortlist. Just quickly, can you give listeners the website so they can find all the more information about both um, online? Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for, um, for for taking this interest in the prize. We're really delighted to have you, you particularly your expert eyes on this. Um, our website is um, pushkinhouse.org and then there's a section there on the book prize. And any of you who are in England on the 12th of June, I think we've got a handful of tickets left for the dinner and it's a great evening. So I really recommend it. Oh, it'll be a, f- a fantastic evening of Russian culture and um, literature and friendship and um, cross-cultural encounters. So thank you, Clem. Thanks again. Um, I've been speaking with Clem Cecil, director of London's Pushkin House. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremieva. Don't go away. In a moment, we will speak with one of the Pushkin House Prize finalists about their book. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today I'm speaking with Professor Mark Galliotti about his book, The Vori, which was published last year by Yale University Press and shortlisted for this year's prestigious Pushkin House Prize. Mark is currently an honorary professor at University College London's School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, as well as a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London. He's the author of numerous books on Russia and Eurasian politics, military history, and he's a popular speaker and lecturer across Europe. The Vori has been translated into 12 other languages, including Russian, and I'm delighted that it brings us together today for this chat. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Uh, Let's get started um, at the beginning. In the Vori, you make it clear that it was your PhD work on the impact of the Afghan war in the USSR that led you to the more formalized study of Russian organized crime. Can you expand on that? Surely. It was very much in the closing, declining, decaying years of the Soviet Union and 1988 to 1991, dates me immediately, um, I was working on, on the Afghan war. And one of the things I was trying to do was precisely to get to meet veterans of that particular miserable struggle. And then having met them when they'd just come back from the war, just been demobilized, trying to come back maybe six months or a year later and just see how they had adapted. And obviously, most of them had adapted the way people do after horrible experiences. However, there was an interesting and sometimes disturbing fraction of the cohort who didn't seem to be able to let go of the war, the adrenaline, and so forth. Now, some of them drifted into the emergency services. They went back into the military. They joined the police or whatever. But there were others who were drifting in a different direction, um, and they were precisely the sort who we found wearing ugly shell suits, hanging around hotel lobbies behind sort of dubious businessmen. Um, and that was what first a got me really thinking that as the Soviet Union was collapsing, something was emerging from behind the ruins that. In the West, we hadn't really thought about, and actually, I mean, to our shame, there had been some emigre writers from the Soviet Union um, who had written some really interesting books. And to be blunt, the criminological community had basically patted them on the head, said very interesting, and then ignored them. We hadn't really accepted the thought that there could be organized crime within what seemed to be a police state. 
So it first got me thinking, huh, there's something interesting here to, to follow up on after the PhD is done. But it also gave me my first low-level contacts in that particular world, because that's absolutely vital for doing the kind of research that I was then going to go on to do. Well, and, and going on from that, um, usually when we talk to people about their books at the New Books Network, and we ask them about their research methodology, we hear about heroic conquests in dusty archives. I think your methodology has to be quite different. And I remember hearing you speak, I think it was 2013 or 2014 in Moscow, and wondering to myself, what on earth does he do all day to get this information? Um, and reading your book, I got a better sense of that. To the extent that you're able, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you did to pull all this information together? It's very rich primary source material, but I, I can't think what you have to go through to get it. Well, I mean, look, we should start with the, the basic point that you know, the majority of this is precisely based on the usual trawl through all kinds of periodicals, newspapers and such like, digging into reports, academic studies, books. I mean, it's actually within Russia, there's really quite a um, dramatic and impressive explosion of, of works about organized crime. I mean, many of which are not impressive books. They're you know, tacky pieces of, of, of pseudo scholarship. But within them, there are also some exceedingly impressive ones. However, beyond that, certainly for the primary stuff, really it goes back to what I was saying um, about my, my dealings with the Afghansi. I mean, to a large extent, it was through personal contact. And this is one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I talk of this as, as a book that was 30 years in the writing, which makes it sound as if I'm an incredibly slow writer. But it was more that this could never be a core project. I mean, once I decided that I wanted to do something serious about this, and particularly, I wanted something that wasn't just drawn off other paper sources, but gave a sense of the people, their own views, their own values, their own attitudes, and sometimes using their own words, that was therefore going to be a much more long-term project. And so in some ways, it was always a parallel project with every other thing I did while I was in, in Russia. Um, because quite often, you know, again, it's not that, because it's not that kind of project where you could just simply think, oh, I'm going to spend four months in, an, in the archive and then I'll have my material. It was a kind of thing where, you know, you would you would cast breadcrumbs out um, onto the waves and you would never really know if you'd get a nibble or not. And you had to be very responsive. So what I did was exactly I, I just got talking to people, made it clear that I was interested in hearing their tales um, tried to find that sweet spot between being open to unexpected and unusual kinds of meetings and being deeply stupid in the kind of risks I took. And to be perfectly honest, when I was younger, as, as younger people tend to be, I was often quite stupid and took chances that I probably shouldn't have, but it, it worked out okay. I'm still here. Um, and, but this is it. But the point is one had to realize that you were dealing with intrinsically dangerous people. Um, who on the one hand were flattered to have an Angliski professor. I mean, if only I had been a professor for most of that time. But anyway, an outsider or a scholar coming to talk to them. But at the same time, you know, I had to very much play up the fact that I was essentially irrelevant, that I wasn't asking them for operational information, that I wasn't a, a police spy or anything like that. Um, and each time you you try and build a little bit of of social capital that you can trade for another conversation, another sit down, buying someone drinks. 
I suspect that in the modern realm of um, all the sort of guidance that is provided for scholars, buying gangsters drinks does not really come <laughs> high on, on sort of recommended good practice. But nonetheless, there we were, um, you know, or, or, or generally doing, doing whatever it takes to actually get, get to meet these people and hear Kaka de Bilda. How was it? And how, how did they get into this life? What do they think of it? What are their values? What are their, anyway, how do they themselves define their identity? So it was little bit by little bit um, in parallel with the, the, the archival stuff and so forth. It was just seeing who was willing to talk to me and what they're willing to say. And not necessarily believing what they said, but even in their lies and their boasts, there is information to be gathered. So there's a ton to sift through. Have you sent them copies of your book in Russian? Um, well, no, but now it's out. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's out. I, exactly. People who um, are, I mean, thank God that in a way the Russian organized crime has its own internal sort of systems, which ensures that many of the people I talked about are dead or in prison. Um, but the people who are not, I tended not to refer to by name. I would either, either use their, their, their klitschka, their underworld name, or sometimes even just simply a, you know, a pseudonym, because that's, that's necessary. But yes, who knows who's going to be reading it now? That's fascinating to think about it. Um, well, let's dive into the book. Um, set the stage for us. And, and the title of your book is The Vori. And tell us who they are and um, how did this all get started in, in the annals of Russian history? When did organized crime take off? Well, I mean, the Vori, as you know, just simply means the thieves, but it's the Russian term for what we might think of as a kind of the career criminal. Now, obviously, as with all societies, one, one can look back and find all kinds of bandit gangs and so forth. But if we're really talking about a, a proper criminal subculture, that, that's a product of the 19th century. And there were two possible tracks it could have taken. One was um, the horse thieves of the countryside, and the other one was the criminal fraternities of the teeming slums of urbanizing and modernizing late 19th century Russia. The horse thieves route turned out to be an evolutionary dead end, and it was in the slums that the Vorovskoy mm -hmm. Mir, the thieves' world, emerged. And this wasn't a, a criminal organization. This was a criminal subculture with its own values and laws and norms. How did the um, organized crime or the Vori change during and, and because of the revolution? Well, I mean, this is definitely what provided the death knell to the, the horse thief route, because horses, which had been once upon a time, both, as it were, state and private assets, essentially were all nationalized in the, the needs of the Civil War. But also the Bolsheviks found themselves soon in this desperate struggle for survival, of, of the Russian Civil War, 1918 to 22-ish. And frankly, in the name of victory, they made all kinds of compromises. In many ways, I mean, they, they won a country but lost their soul. And they turned to anyone who would be helpful and useful. And this is a point when the Bolshevik Party and the Bolshevik security and military apparatus became full of many of the worst kinds of rogues and opportunists. And that included gangsters and bandits. We, we have all kinds of cases of bandits essentially becoming <laughs> treated as law enforcers, really, or joining the Cheka, the um, Bolshevik secret police. So in a way, the first little tentacles of penetration of the Bolshevik party by the criminals, but also the penetration of the underworld by the Bolsheviks. I mean, after all, the Bolsheviks had had form in the sense of people like Stalin had been involved in 
organizing uh, bank robberies to raise funds in advance. But nonetheless, we, we began to see the first tentative signs of, I don't want to call it an alliance, but let's say banyatia, understandings. And there is, there is a sense of there's, there are honest thieves and bad thieves at this point. Well, I mean, in a way, that's something that is pervasive through Russia, and, and, and you still encounter it today. The honest thief, after all, is just a, a gangster and an exploiter. Um, but at least he, and it almost always is a he, is honest about what he is. The dishonest thieves are the ones in uniforms and judges' robes and government offices who are meant to be on the side of the people, but frankly, every bit of it is exploitative. So even at that point, there was a kind of a moral economy that said, actually, gangsters are not on our side. There's, there's no kind of pretense. This is an interesting thing. There is no real pretense of a sort of Robin Hood figure in Russian popular culture and so forth. Even when we actually see um, you know, gangsters emerging in that culture, particularly in the, in the um, stories of Ilfan Petrov um, and, and Isaac Babel, um, there's, no, there's no pretense that they're actually with a heart of gold but at least they do not pretend to be anything other than what they are. Okay. Um, but the, the world of the gangsters and the bandits is very separate from the mainstream world. And joining one uh, necessitates turning your back on the other. Um, and that's true through the Stalinist era. Uh, but then it begins to change. Am I... Am I right about that? Well, I mean, in, in some ways, it begins to change in the Stalinist era. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the whole element, well, one of the whole essences of the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves world, was that there was this common code. Um, you know, that, that there wasn't a single organizational structure, but there was a, a code that, that said, this is how you behave. And a lot of it was kind of basic and straightforward. You, you don't rat on your colleagues. Um, you don't welch on a bet. But one of the important things that actually is quite different from many other organized crime cultures around the world is exactly that you never, ever collaborate with the authorities, even if it makes sense in the short term, so, which means so you couldn't have a regular job. You couldn't pay your taxes, even if it would make your life easier. Anything that involved collaborating with the state was taboo. And obviously... This helps establish the, the separateness of the culture. I mean, again, just to mention, for example, the, the tattoos, which are obviously one of the things that everyone knows about. Everyone who watches our, you know, films and TV, it's one of the sort of stable tropes. The Russian gangster is always tattooed, though nowadays he's not, but that's another matter. Well, many other criminal cultures have got tattoos, and, and one of the obvious parallels is with the Japanese Yakuza. Japanese Yakuza had these extraordinary, often tremendously artistic tattoos, but the point is that they're on the body. They're only in like the, the upper parts of the arm and so forth. So that on the one hand, you can go into the bathhouse with your fellow Yakuza and admire each other's tattoos. But then you put your suit on or whatever, and you look indistinguishable from every other honest, upright citizen. So you can slip into mainstream society. Exactly. Now, Vor tattoos, absolutely not. You know, a lot of them were, I mean, for example, on the hands. The hands became a virtual criminal CV, a, a criminal resume, because there were particular tattoos on, on the fingers that would show, for example, the type of crimes you commit um, and other elements of your modus operandi. So you could literally remember that, you know, this, this emerged in a pre-literate society. You could literally look at someone's hands and know what kind of crimes they committed. Likewise, there will often be tattoos on the face. 
Now, this is, after all, an age before laser removal and so forth. So the whole point was, A, to show a lifelong commitment, that you're in this for life, and B, to show that you are a vor, you are part of this criminal world. You want the outsiders to know who you are and fear you. In some ways, this was a culture that was born from a sense of the and the underculture, underclass of Tsarist and then early Bolshevik Russia, feeling itself excluded, marginalized, exploited and ignored by mainstream society, and therefore saying, see me, fear me, I, in a way, will not be cowed, will not accept your view of the world. So that's all very, very stark. Then, of course, along comes Stalin. And with Stalin come the gulags. And you have this whirlwind of terror, modernization, collectivization, industrialization, which is really being built in part on the backs of virtual slave labor within the gulag system. And what began very much as a political move to cow and break any potential opposition increasingly became an economic process. Now, in that case, you obviously want to be able to run your prison system, your labor camp system, as cheaply as possible. And one of the ways of doing that, it was a kind of a piece of parsimonious but vicious brilliance by the Stalinist regime, is to turn to career criminals to keep the majority of the camp population, or just ordinary peasants, people who'd just been hoovered up by the system because they laughed at the wrong joke, didn't laugh at the right joke or whatever, um, anyway, to keep them in line. So what happened is the Stalinist state basically tried to break the cohesion of the Vorovskoy Mir and offer those who are willing to collaborate perks, privileged lifestyle, the chance to exert power within the gulags. Now, most did not accept, but there was a minority who did, a minority who are willing to basically become allies of the state. And in doing so, they broke the code. And that was a truly momentous moment. Now, in the pre-war era, essentially the two worlds, the traditionalists and the collaborators, kept apart. I mean, were, the collaborators were too few to challenge the traditionalists, and the traditionalists knew that if they went after the collaborators, the state would, would intervene. Um, it was a, a brutal sort of armed truce, which occasionally broke down those individual bits of violence. But up to the Second World War, that system basically persevered. And how did the gangsters sort of leave the gulags? Were they uh, released sort of into a, onto a helpless uh, society or were they moved to other jails? What was their progress after the gulag period? Well, I mean, in a way, the gulag network was really the, the, the prison structure. Um, now, it was actually a very dynamic one in the sense of people constantly being moved from camp to camp. We have a tendency to think of it as a very static place where you're just arrested, tried, sent to a gulag, and you worked there until you were released or died. Well, in fact, there was the so-called ETAP system, which meant that there were constantly large numbers of convicts being moved around. Um, this labor camp, well, the mine that it was working is now tapped out. Um, this labor camp, they just had a typhoid epidemic, so they need more workers. You know, whatever the reason, people are constantly being shuffled around, but not necessarily released. Now, what happened is during the Second World War, we had a certain number of convicts either forced into the ranks to, to fight or actually volunteering. You know, 
generated my sort of sense this was after all an existential struggle for mother russia which obviously as far as the traditionalists were concerned made them collaborators and at the end of the war they were sent back into the camps but you also had a massive influx of soviet prisoners of war soviet soldiers who had been caught by the axis powers kept in prison camps now stalin's view was basically that a soviet soldier should fight until he dies and for various reasons therefore you had the, the ghastly spectacle of people being liberated from nazi concentration camps and then being taken by armed guard to a filtration camp and then to a soviet gulag but what this meant was you had a, a critical mass of people who one way or the other had served the state and therefore the the old sort of um cold war truce which had existed between the collaborators and the, the traditionalists could no longer continue you had basically the explosion of a civil war within the gulag system within the vorovskoy mir um one that dramatically destabilized the system led to a whole variety of risings and frankly made the gulag system economically um no longer worth running so when stalin died and khrushchev his successor begins to open up the camps it's not necessarily because of humanitarianism it's just simply because the camps no longer made sense politically or economically but what this did mean absolutely was that essentially a new criminal culture which had been now taken over by people who observed the old criminal code but had shall we say edited it to say it's okay to collaborate with the authorities when it's in your interests they were now released into the soviet society and it was a, it was a very brutal and chaotic time um but they also essentially proceeded to colonize the rest of the soviet underworld so by the end of the 1950s the early 1960s the soviet underworld is now dominated by by this new vorovskoy mir this new form of of criminal subculture which has all the kind of the, the unpleasant macho violence of the old one but a much more politically savvy sense of when it's okay to deal with particularly corrupt figures within the state apparatus and those are growing in number in the 1960s aren't they absolutely i mean this is the era in which you really have the the slide of the soviet union into the hands of the black market and and corruption um ideology increasingly takes second place to self interest and the vori are therefore in a great position to to take advantage of that um and again one of the reasons why we in in the west hadn't really considered organized crime is because it's not really visible you know if you're an ordinary soviet citizen you didn't find gangsters part of your life because you had a strange unholy trinity um you there there were the black marketeers who i mean we think of black marketeers and we think of some spiv who's got a few watches to sell but actually you know particularly by the 1970s in some cases we were talking about people who were making millions who actually had whole underground factories um pr- producing goods and then you also have the corrupt party officials who in a way had power but were looking for ways of monetizing that and turning it into the imported jeans the beatles records whatever it else that they actually wanted for their quality of life and organized crime in many ways emerged as a kind of connective tissue between these other two more powerful blocks yeah the black marketeers had money but didn't have security so organized crime provided that party bosses had access to resources but couldn't necessarily turn it into into the goods that they wanted organized crime could help that 
So they, they move into sort of a service provider role between, the, between these two distinct groups. But as the Soviet Union begins to break up, there are more and more opportunities, aren't there? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, and, and this, this point of organized crime as a service provider, I mean, I think it's really crucial to, to dwell on just for a moment. I mean, for me, one of the reasons for, for, for basically writing this book was not just because, hey, gangsters are cool, though in their own brutal way they are, um, but also because it provides an alternative way of looking at the whole processes that are shaping and reshaping Soviet and then Russian life. Because organized crime is effectively defined by the upper world. The, the underworld is just the dark shadow of the upper world. Organized crime fills the voids and the vacuums. It fills the spaces and the gaps that are left by legitimate society. Where there's areas where there's no governance and security, organized crime emerges as a sort of rough and ready security provider. Where there are goods that people want, but they can't get in other, sort, other ways, organized crime emerges to provide that. Um, and when there are laws that run counter to the moral economy of society, generally organized crime sort of benefits from that. So in this respect, absolutely, organized crime is, we, we think of it as being something predatory. You think of it as someone who, you know, comes along and says, lovely business you got here, shame if it burns down. But in fact, long-term successful criminals in their own way understand that in fact, instead of being predators, they need exactly to be service providers. The only question is which market? And yeah, as, as the Soviet Union ran down, as the party became more and more corrupt, as the economy became more and more dysfunctional, the opportunities for that um, for the for organized crime to fill those gaps became more and more evident. And then when Gorbachev came along, everything was kind of revolutionized from as far as the gangsters were concerned. And for them, the, the, Gorch, the Gorbachev era is a, uh, is just like a bonus um, because of, of the anti-alcohol campaign and um, the cooperatives. Can you speak a little bit about those two elements and how they, it seemed to me in your book, they, they bring the, underworld out of the shadows um, and into more more into the mainstream of society because there are specific things that people now can access that they couldn't before. Absolutely right. Um, and and I, I, look, I feel so sorry for Paul Gorbachev, um, a, a guy who kind of came along, you know, probably he was like the last believer in the Soviet Union who thought that somehow this system could be saved. And, and in, in hindsight, one would be hard pressed to come up with a reform program that was not more convenient for the gangsters. Because first of all, exactly, we, we had the anti-alcohol campaign that was not meant to be a prohibition American style, but um, you know, such is the elephantine and often insensitive way in which the Soviet state machine worked was that it was a lot easier most of the time to, to ban than to wean people off. Um, and anyone who thinks that they can separate Russians from their booze really, you know, need, needs to, to reevaluate their understanding of the society in question. Because, yeah, absolutely. What happened is, you know, you had a massive demand um, for alcohol um, that totally overwhelmed the capacity of the existing black marketeers to provide. So the gangsters also moved into that. Everything from, um, you know, the, the classic brewing Samagon homebrew in, in, in Granny's bathtub, all the way through to, you know, you had cases where huge amounts of existing alcohol was to be destroyed. 
and it was written off as being destroyed and then just simply sold on the black market. So one way or the other, they provided that. And again, this was actually for many ordinary Soviet citizens, the first time they actually encountered organized crime. Because as I said, up now, you know, it, it had been basically sort of serving these other elements. It wasn't, it wasn't acting on the, on the consumer level. So the first time they met the gangsters was not gangsters as predators, was not gangsters selling you know, heroin to your kids. It was quite the opposite. It was these are the people who could get you the booze for your New Year's Eve party or for your daughter's wedding or whatever else. And therefore, you know, weirdly enough, they, they, they were regarded in some ways as actually a, a positive force. And again, I, mean, I remember this, I mentioned it in the book, talking to someone who had been a shistyorka, a kind of a gopher, a wannabe, a low-level gangster in those times, who was saying he was amazed when he was accompanying a more senior gangster to the various sort of big sprawling housing estates in, in suburban Moscow. And... It was absolutely, Ribiata, lads, come on in. You know, what have you got for us today? And then people think, well, you know, while I'm buying booze from you, can you also get me cigarettes? Do you know anyone in City Hall who can help with this particular problem I've got? Do you know who can get me this, this medicine for my kids? Again, they became generally the Swiss army knife that Soviet society used to try and get through all the, the red tape and, and this general sort of arterial clogging, if I can mix my metaphors in a rather unfortunate way, um, of, of, of dec declining Soviet system. Now, that meant that the gangsters suddenly found themselves vastly more cash rich than they had ever had before. And the problem is, what do you do with that? Because, you know, it's all very well being a ruble millionaire. But if you have no real re evidence as to how you acquired it, and anyway, if there's nothing much in the shops, what do you do with that? And then along came the cooperative movement, this attempt to create um, small-scale private enterprise just at the right time. On the one hand, it gave them ways in which of laundering their money. They could say, yes, I've got this money because my you know, the hairdresser that my daughter runs is vastly successful, even if, in fact, it doesn't have a single customer. But also it provided ways in which the, the, the gangsters could then basically buy elements of the economy. They could turn their cash into actual sort of assets. And then the third element of the Gorbachev era is obviously the, the collapse of the party state. Um, that you know, basically the, the, the police, the, even the KGB, suddenly became sort of almost uh, uprooted. You had party bosses who, once upon a time, had been you know lords of their particular domains, suddenly facing elections. And thinking, well, actually, I, I need someone who can get the vote out. I need someone who, if need be, can break up the public meetings of my rivals. And so just as, in many ways, this was a kind of era which reminds me very much of the sort of Dashiell Hammett into war America. Um, you know, and all of a sudden, the gangsters became, again, useful service providers in a, in a different way. And so temporarily, that unholy trinity in which the, the gangsters had been the weakest element of the three, well, the pyramid was reversed. And for a while, in the late 80s and into the 1990s, the gangsters seemed to be the lords of the system because they can use their violence, they can use their new economic clout, and they can use their new political clout to basically help define the world around them. Fantastic. <laughs> and this is the this is the moment when I think you both you and I sort of started to be in Russia uh, as young young people and seeing this happen. And I do remember the Yeltsin era as this wildly 
garish time of you know seeing actual gangsters in restaurants and cafes and in their shiny cars they become very flashy as they are out in the mainstream um but at the same time in your book you make it clear that there are changes happening between the state and the underworld that are not as visible uh to to mainstream society and can you walk us through those changes and how they kind of bring the underworld to the dawn of the Putin era? Surely. Well, absolutely. The, the 1990s, the Yeltsin era, was this time of real overt gangsterism, of, of, of the crassest and, as you say, flashiest sort. And I think it, it reflects generally that, that time. I mean, this is an era in which you had lines of pensioners outside metro stations selling anything that they had um, just desperately to eke out you know, life, given that their pensions were worth nothing. And at the same time, Mercedes-Benz was selling more bulletproof limousines in Russia than in the rest of the world put together. Good times. Um, Good times. Yeah, well, <laughs> especially for car dealers. Um, and the violence of this time reflected the fact that precisely suddenly everything was up for grabs. There were no clear understandings, again, back that, back that word, about who, who ran what, who was more powerful than whom. So this was a period in which, as it were, turf borders were being defined, pecking orders were being established, and that really only happens through violence. And also at a time when, in a way, the state was just not in a position to do anything about it. Um, I mean, I remember once going on a, on a drive along with, with, with Russian police at the time um, in, again, a, a Moscow suburb, and they were meant to be going, oh, the group I was with was meant to be going out on, on patrol um, in, in, a, in a car. And first of all, they, all, they, they fished out for me a, a bulletproof vest. My rule of thumb is basically I only get worried when people precisely present me with body armor. <laughs> um, and these are all clunky old Afghan war military stuff. I'm very, very uncomfortable, very heavy. And I'm not quite sure how far it really was, the fact that it was the only vest they had available or how far it was, let's have some fun with a foreigner. But they gave me a bulletproof vest, which had a bullet hole in it. Oh, great. Which wasn't a sort of an encouraging start. But anyway, we, so we piled into, the little, in this, this, into this little wazik, this little jeep. And there was the driver. There was the guy next to the driver with his um, submachine gun. Um, there was the guy next to me with this full, full-sized assault rifle, and there was me. They put on their flashing blue lights, and obviously they, ha- they had a circuit that they had to patrol, and they just put their foot down and screamed along that circuit as quickly as they possibly could. If anyone had wanted police support, they literally would have had to lie in the road in front and probably been run over. Um, and the reason was that basically these were guys who were being paid less than a Moscow municipal bus driver were finding themselves injected into a situation in which, you know, the, the gangsters had had more and bigger guns courts were totally corrupt and therefore not on their side. Um, and perhaps no wonder they, they essentially retreated to their sandbagged and fortified little police stations. Um, so, you know, they, these are not people who, who could essentially control organized crime, at least not at that time. So, yes, this is this is the surface situation. But you're absolutely right. There are also the, these subterranean processes that were taking place because the real money is not being made by um, shaking down kiosk holders for protection payments and so forth. This is a point where you have the opportunity to basically privatize whole industries and factories into your back pocket for COPEX on the ruble if you have money and if you have the right connections. And obviously there are a lot of you know, old you know, ex-party figures and so forth, 
but there are also a lot of gangsters who are in this position. And what you have now is, is the differentiation. There's the old school gang boss, particularly the so-called Vori Vazakonia, thieves within the code, who are the sort of the high priests of, of the Vorovskoy Mir. But again, you know, creatures of, of the gulag and of the old code. And then you have this new emerging gangster businessman, the autoritet, the authority, who wasn't tattooed, who didn't regard going to the gulags as a mark of pride, but rather a mark of you bribed the wrong person. Um, and, and essentially, the, these were the people who were making the money, and these were the people who were rising. And I think we, we, at that point, we were beginning to see this differentiation between the old school, tattooed, shall we say, blue collar gangsters and the new generation white collar businessman criminal who is not quite at the level of oligarchs or even necessarily minigarchs but you know basically these people are, are making the real money and and that's that's going to be crucial because in a way these are the people who are going to essentially dominate the russian underworld and then of course russia becomes too small for them and so they have to take it global and and you famously coined the phrase McMafia, um, which was later used in a book and a, a television series, but to describe the globalization of Russian, now, now what you call in your book, Russian-based organized crime. Can you talk about that move abroad of, of, the, uh, of the gangsters and the bandits into sort of entrepreneurial uh, global organized crime? Yeah, and you're very kind to, to mention that that point about the sort of the, the, the word McMafia. I mean, I use it in a much more narrow form in a splendidly boozy meal with, with, with Misha Glenny, who then sort of not only kindly quoted me in his book, but then used it in a much broader, much more interesting way. But yes, I mean, what happened in the 1990s is this. No one knew what was going to happen. Um, no one knew if the communists were going to come back. Let's face it, they probably would in 1996 if the election hadn't been rigged. Um, if there was going to be a military coup, if the nationalists were going to start running the country, if the country was going to collapse. So from the gangsters' point of view, they had a real incentive to internationalize, to move assets, money, and often people, families, and so forth out of Russia just in case. And this happens at a time when you have a lot of international criminal players who are suddenly getting interested now that, now that the, the Iron Curtain has fallen and thinking, huh, Russia has opportunities. And interestingly, it was the Italian mafia and the other Italian criminal syndicates who are actually the first. Well, there, there is a lot, frankly, that, that um, unites Italians and Russians um, who are thinking precisely, we are looking for places where we can launder our money, where we can hide our money. Russia will be a splendid black hole in which to do that. So you have a, a, a generation of business-minded Russian gangsters looking outwards and established criminals looking into Russia. And, and at the same time, you had the fact that the sort of the newly formed states of the other post-Soviet states and also the other post-Warsaw Pact states were all weak and transitional. And there was a, a period in which rather sort of over grandiosely, the Russian gangsters thought they could basically build themselves an empire abroad. Now that failed. They, they, they crashed out at first. They, they looked very sort of powerful because they had men and guns and about, basically were willing to use it. But in every case, they were ultimately beaten back. But this is an interesting thing. So attempts to actually take physical domination of the underworlds outside Russia failed. But on the other hand, building business connections, that worked very well indeed. And that's continued. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, still till, till this day is, is 
doing very well for themselves. Well, this is it. I think they, they learned their lesson. I mean, they, they started sort of as, as, as wannabe conquistadors of the global underworld, and they realized that, that didn't work. So they, they came out again as merchant adventurers. As instead, instead of trying to take over, they, they and this is amazing. I mean, Russians are great deal makers, as, as you well know. Um, instead, they go to the local underworld and say, what do you need? You know, you need drugs. Well, we got drugs. One third of all Afghan heroin comes through Russia these days. We build, you know, produce our own methamphetamines, etc. We swap heroin for Latin American cocaine. We can get your drugs. You need women. You need guns. You need computer hacking expertise. You want to launder your money. Whatever you want, we've got it. And that's what's happened. They have essentially become the global service providers to organize crime all the way around the world. I mean, there isn't a continent in the world except with the possible exception of Antarctica. In which there's actually re- Russian organized crime is not acting. Yes, indeed. Who knows? There's a research there. station there. <laughs> I've been to it. Um, it's small, but you know, it has potential. You never know. Um, that, let's get into the whole Putin era because things change dramatically. And again, I see this um, this theme that the upper world is mirrored by the underworld. As Putin makes his deal with the oligarchs, so too the gangsters are beginning to become more, have, have a symbiosis with the state almost. Yeah, I mean, what Putin in effect offered was it was a new social contract. I mean, you got to realize he came to power, you know, instead of thinking of him purely in sort of historic terms as someone who wrenched power, you know, he was basically picked and groomed by a whole bunch of people who above all had become tired and frustrated with the chaos of the 1990s. They thought, no, it's time to bring the state back. And they saw in this moderately successful, if if that ex-KGB officer, the right figure. And particularly that was because of what he had done in St. Petersburg in the 1990s when he had been deputy mayor. And in hindsight, that should have been the evidence we needed to know what was going to happen to the underworld across the, the Russian Federation once Putin was president. Because when he was in St. Petersburg, his job was in effect to be the mayor's office's liaison with whoever needed to be liaised with, whether that was foreign companies, whether that was other municipal administrations, or whether or not it was also organized crime, and particularly the Tambovskaya, which is the most powerful organized crime grouping in St. Petersburg, which is also heavily involved in the upper world economy, particularly sort of hydrocarbons and so forth. And, and he proved, I mean, he was not, he was not a gangster himself, but he proved that he was perfectly able to work with them. Well, literally, then, this is the model that was then rolled out across the country when he was president. Um, two very specific personal examples. Now, I once talked to a Moscow police officer um, from Moore, which is the sort of Moscow Criminal Intelligence Department, who basically said that you know, in the year 2000, much of what he was doing was basically arranging sit-downs with local gangster chieftains and explaining to them the new rules of the game. And that was this, that obviously, you know, gangsters continued to to gangster and the police would continue to try and catch them. However, if they did anything that looked like a challenge to the state or an embarrassment to the state, then the state would treat them actually as enemies of the state. And that's a much, much more dangerous place to be. Um, but that also meant things like the, you know, the, the overt gangsterism on the streets, the drive-by shootings and all that kind of thing. Nothing like that was, was acceptable because it basically made it look as if the, the state wasn't in charge. And 
by this point anyway, the, the turf wars and the pecking order struggles of the 1990s had basically been played out. People had understood now, you know, the, the lines, the, the boundaries were drawn and so forth. So the gangsters were willing to kind of accept this, this new status quo. And they were also relieved. Again, I remember talking to a gangster who, because he, like most of his peers, had believed the kind of tough law and order rhetoric that Putin had been spouting in late 1999. He slept with a, a packed suitcase under his bed so that if one of his informants in the law enforcement apparatus had said, you know, we're going to be arresting you tomorrow, he could grab that and head for the airport. Well, he never had to use that suitcase. For these people, what Putin was offering worked really quite well. And so from the beginning, you had the situation in which the state kind of came back. The state reasserted itself as essentially the biggest gang in town and defined the rules of the game. And that is really the, the model that has, con- has been established, was from established then and has continued to the present day. And yet in Putin's um, current term, in his um, his after after the castling with Medvedev, I almost sense from your book that the state has begun to outsource uh, things that are, are not seemly for a great power such as Russia to be seen to be doing. And you make that clear that um, this is the case in the annexation of Crimea uh, in 2014, but also uh, going on today in the Donbass. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about the role gangsters played in the annexation and continue to play in Donbass. Well, this is the interesting thing. We, we, we've had this shift from the state essentially defining the laws, the rules of the game in negative terms. You do not do X. And when particular gangster leaders overstep those bounds, the state would then deal with them in a, in a very sort of obviously heavy-handed way. Um, in 2007, for example, Vladimir Barsukov, Kumarin, who was the head of Tambovskaya, um, you know, basically stepped on on too many. Decided that he stepped on too many toes. He was a bit too obvious, a bit too embarrassing. They sent 150 police commandos to arrest him. Um, just just to make the point, yeah. it doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how many men with guns you are. We're bigger and we've got more. Um, 2010, Tariel Onyani, this Georgian godfather who looked as if he was trying to sort of risk triggering a, a generalized turf war. He was arrested and, and put behind bars. 2013, the mayor of Mahachkala, so-called Said the Undying, um, you know, because of all the number of times people tried to kill him. He was arrested likewise. So you know, basically they said, this is what you don't do. And if you cross these boundaries, we will deal with you. However, 2014, a period, you know, in, in Crimea is both a culmination as well as a cause. It's a culmination of an increasing sense that essentially that basically um, the West is is doing Russia down. That the international order is something that is created by the West, preserved by the West, and in the interests of the West, um, and something has to be done about it. And when the Russians decide to take Crimea, they obviously want to do so in as neat and surgical a way as possible. And they opt for this use of so-called little green men or polite people, if you want to use the, the Russian formulation. And it's clear that you know at that point they turned as allies to local organized crime. And there were two particular gangs, um, which had been you know, at daggers drawn with each other. But on the other hand, both of them had connections with Sontsevskaya, which is one of the biggest of the Moscow-based combines. And as I understand it, Sontsevskaya was used as sort of broker introductions. And basically, they were told, well, look, there's going to be room for both of you. 
if you are willing to cooperate with our seizure of Crimea. And actually, as we saw, when the, the actual seizure of the, of the peninsula took place, on the one hand, you had these guys who were you know, in the latest Russian military kit, highly professional, highly efficient. And these were basically naval infantry, marines, and, and Spetsnaz special forces. But you also had these much more slovenly guys in cast-off camo um, who spent most of the time just kind of hanging around outside government buildings or, or doing a bit of sort of gentle looting. These were precisely the gunmen of these two main local gangs who had been pressed into service just to provide a additional manpower, just in case it, you know, it came to a fight, but also to help justify and rationalize this notion that this was somehow something that came organically up from within Crimea, rather than just be, simply being a, a, a Russian coup de main. Um, so right at that beginning, you actually had them mobilizing gangsters for state purpose. And we've seen that since then. I mean, this has become an increasing trend that instead of just simply the relationship being the state tells you what you can't do, it's also from time to time, the state will tell you organized crime what you must do. We've seen you know, gangsters being used to provide gunmen in the Donbass. Um, and we've also seen gangsters being used as um, auxiliaries to Russia's intelligence operations and wider campaigns um, against the West in Europe. Again, I, I don't want to overplay this. I don't want to make it sound as if every Russian gangster is also an agent of the Kremlin. But it's more, it's the same pattern as frankly applies to every other aspect of Russian society. Putin has created this mobilization state where essentially every individual, every company may be asked to do something for the good of the motherland, and that's an offer you can't refuse. Gangsters are not exceptions. And what's next for the Vori? I mean, you, you make it clear in your book that a lot of them are getting on in years and um, looking for something of a quiet retirement um, rather than going out in a blaze. And they would like their, you, you famously say that uh, gangsters don't want their kids to be gangsters. They want them to be orthodontists. Um, how, how will they continue as Russia becomes increasingly isolated and um, Putin continues on in his, in his way? Well, this is always the, the big challenge. How, how do you retire as a gangster? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, one, one guy, one, one particular guy did try it, Yed Hassan, um, one, one of the sort of biggest uh, criminals, well, and also largest in physical sense, um, in, in, in Russia. And he was in due course assassinated for his pains. So that wasn't a particularly good message. But I think what we're seeing is the current status quo is increasingly fragile and frankly, incre increasingly artificial. In a way, what, what Putin has done is, is basically been trying to fix the status quo that obtained in the year 2000. And since then, you know, new criminal opportunities have arisen. All kinds of things have changed. But the status quo, because he's worried about unleashing forces which could create another sort of series of turf wars, the status quo hasn't adapted to that. You've also got the fact that you know, if you were an ambitious um, middle ranker in the 1990s, you could rely on the fact that you could, you know, if you were lucky and ambitious and smart, you could rise pretty much literally in, in, in dead man's shoes. Now, since then, obviously, we've we've had a, a problem within the underworld, which is not enough gangsters dying. Um, and what this means is you have a cohort of 30 and 40 somethings who are thinking, when when am I going to get my place in the sun? When am I going to be a top dog? Because precisely you've got these 60 something year olds who can't let go because they will have no security otherwise. So, I mean, I think we are seeing real tensions within the underworld, 
But I think more to the point, what we're actually seeing is this gap between the autoriteti and the old school blue collar gangsters growing. And I think that what we will probably see is in years to come, firstly, sort of eruptions of violence within the underworld. And those the most the most successful autoriteti trying to make that jump into full blown legitimacy. Um, you know, we're, we're into Godfather three territory. Um, and and I, th I think that is really going to be a sort of a crucial element in actually shaping Russia's move out from being a kind of a gangster dominated state into being a kind of a rough and ready, but emergingly more sort of European one. And I'm broadly optimistic about that point, but it's not going to be without its violence on the way. So we might see a sequel to the Vore, Vore 2. Vore 2, exactly. I think this is Vore it. Two. I mean, I, once I sell the movie rights in particular. <laughs> well, apart from that, can you tell uh, listeners what else you're working on at the moment? Sure. I mean, I've got a variety of projects um, that I'm looking at. I mean, one is a sort of a, a broad, more broad-based one about how warfare is, is changing in the modern world, one of my little hobby horse projects. Um, beyond that, I mean, my next kind of big book project, kind of comparable to Vori, um, is on the Russian security and intelligence services, not just who they are and what they do, but also precisely their, their impact on politics and on, on society as a whole. And in many ways, it, it, it's a parallel project to Vori because, again, it's it's a fairly opaque world, but one I've been sort of after three decades of just gathering conversations here and snippets there. It's a chance to use that. And very much on over the horizon is an absolute work of hubris, which is a history of organized crime everywhere. Um, but that that's the book that I hope to get done before I die. <laughs> <laughs> That's your sunset book. Exactly. Um, but you also you also have a book out about um, Putin himself um, at the moment, yeah, which is um, even more current than the Vori. Absolutely. Um, it came out in, in February. Um, and I must admit, I've been very sort of pleasantly pleased by the response to it because it is, it's, it's a short book, really written. Obviously, I'm hoping that it has something for the specialist, but also written for the, the, the generalist reader. And it's called, you know, we need to talk about Putin. And if I'm honest, it's essentially a 28,000 word rant. Um, you know, why everyone else gets Putin wrong. And let me tell you how it really is. Um, I mean, joking apart, it attempts to deconstruct a lot of the sort of commonly held myths about Putin and through Putin about modern Russia. And, and, and give an alternative sense of it. And as I said, I, I hope that people find it useful. I'm, I'm sure that they will. I, I know I enjoyed it uh, immensely. And so the Vori and We Need to Talk About Putin are both available wherever great books are sold. But where else can listeners find you uh, lurking on the internet? Well, I mean, as is, as is the, the, the modern way, I'm always building my personal brand, God help us all. Um, on, on Twitter, I'm on at Mark Galeotti, so that's at M-A-R-K-G-A-L-E-O-T-T-I. My blog is called In Moscow Shadows, and I sort of neglected it slightly of late as I moved to London. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's a place where I put all kind of ideas. And on Facebook, there's a, a page called Mark Galeotti about Russia, um, which, which is sort of openly available. And I encourage listeners to visit it. It's lively and interesting. And I always find something 
thought-provoking there um, on a daily or even weekly basis. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Mark Galliotti for joining us today. Um, his book is The Vori, and it is, again, shortlisted for the Pushkin House Prize, which is coming up in about three weeks. And we wish you all the best with that, Mark. I very much appreciate it, and I've enjoyed talking to you. 